Hi, Chris Fallotton here. Welcome to my podcast where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and develop you in the art of thinking like God. One of the best ways you can do this is by reading my newest book, Spiritual Intelligence, which is available for purchase everywhere you love to buy your books. Check out my new book, Spiritual Intelligence, and let me know what you think about it. I hope you enjoy this message today. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for what you're doing in this season. And like we sang today, Lord, you're, you're you in those shadows. You're the light in the shadow. You're the one that's guiding us and helping us. And Lord, we thank you that you're our strength and you are, Lord, you're the one we're, that we, you're the one we're counting on. You're the one we trust in. You're a very present help in a time of trouble. Amen. Well, um, I want to talk about the coming Reformation. And I've uh, had uh, several uh, encounters in the last week, which are really, it's really good to feel the Lord around you again. I think I, I, think I go through seasons that feel like wintertime when the Lord is always with us, but um, sometimes I'm not always aware of his presence. But this has been a really good week. Um, I want to talk about, uh, I just want to begin, this is going to be, I doubt I finished this message, but this is going to be a little bit of a journey. I want to talk about, first of all, just the, our current state uh, of prophetic ministry, and, um, and I'll just talk for a few minutes about that. Uh, the last message I gave, which was about probably three weeks ago, we talked about prophetic ministry, my, my own apology, and, and all of that. And I just want to uh, respond to just a few things that people are sharing, and just hopefully bring some clarity to that. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, the Bible says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. It's interesting that word judgment means to separate, to discriminate, or dispute. And the prophetic ministry was always meant to be in this safety net of, of, of judgment of prophetic words in which we separate the, uh, the holy from uh, maybe the profane, but more like the holy from the human. And um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, don't quench the spirit I love the way Paul starts this, this statement. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to what is good. Isn't it interesting that Paul exhorts us to not quench the spirit by despising prophetic utterances? Why would, they, why would Paul write to the Thessalonians about, about despising prophetic utterances? Unless, what, why would you ever despise a prophetic utterance unless the challenges were common to prophetic people and that sometimes they got those, those prophecies wrong? And so Paul talks about, hey, just because there's, there's mixture, just because there's fallibility, don't, don't quench the spirit by despise, despising prophetic utterances. And then he gives us this, uh, this instruction, but examine everything carefully. He's talking about prophecy. But examine everything carefully and hold fast to what is good. Um, did you notice there's no warning about those who had inaccurate prophecies? Um, I, I wanted just to speak to this for a few minutes, and this is I'm really going some other place. But God creates a system of checks and balances in the prophetic community because God knows that everyone will fail at times. So there is this kind of... Um, I, uh, there's this kind of mentality, I don't know where it's really come from, but where there are some ministries that should be infallible. First of all, I want to say that that is, a really, that is a really dangerous theology and culture to create in which we expect certain people, whoever they are, whether it's a teacher, whether it's the pastor, whether it's the apostle, whether it's a prophet, or whether it's some saint, that we would actually put on them the mantle of infallibility. And what I'm getting at is that the moment you as a leader think you are infallible is the moment that you begin the slippery slope towards cultism. The moment you require humans to be infallible is the moment you join the cult. And the moment you judge leaders through the lens of infallibility and teach others to do the same is the moment in which you are the leader of the cult. And what I'm getting at is this. I see two kinds of people, uh, and there's probably many more, so I understand that perspectives are a little bit of an echo. But I see two kinds of people, and that is people who don't believe in prophetic ministry at all, so when they see someone 
that makes a, a mistake like I apparently did, and, and but like many people apparently do. And by the way, this won't be the first mistake I've made, and it certainly won't be the last. When we take people and we judge their prophetic ministry, there's this group of people that goes, I don't believe in prophetic ministry at all, therefore the fact that you missed it means you're a false prophet. Well, as soon as you say I'm a false prophet, you have to acknowledge there must be real ones. And when you acknowledge that there are real prophets and you put on them the, the mantle of infallibility, that is how cults begin. When we look at someone that prophesies or teaches or influences or pastors and we say, that person is infallible, everything they say, I 100% agree with, and then you're going to be very surprised when they make a mistake or when they preach the wrong thing or teach the wrong thing or give you the wrong counsel or there's just nobody who's infallible except for Jesus Christ himself. And so we must create a culture in the, in, in the church where people are where people's ministry is judged. How many know Jesus didn't just talk about false prophets, he talked about false teachers. <laughs> he also talked about false believers. Yeah. Oh boy. There's another group of people that, in my mind, they hold prophets in this high place, in my mind, that's dangerous. In which we, we hear prophecies and we, we change our whole lives without any sort of judgment of the prophecy, and by the way, the Old Testament, we judge prophets, and the New Testament, we judge prophecy. And there's, we, we hold these people in a place that's unhealthy for us. And I wanna say that whenever prophets take the place of our personal relationship with God, how many know that's a place that God never intended? Yeah. God never intended anyone to, st to step between you and your relationship with God. Yeah. Um, when we're talking about prophetic judgment, it's interesting because, you know, prophecy is foretelling and foretelling. So it's foretelling, I'm telling you the future, foretelling, I'm causing the future. Uh, think about Ezekiel's bones in the foretelling. Ezekiel was to prophesy to the bones, and as he prophesied, if you will, he was kind of co-creating with God. So there's the, so how do we judge prophecy if, if prophecy is about the future. Remember the Old Testament, the only way they could tell if a prophet was really from God is whether or not the word came to pass. And by the way, some of these words take years. Like Josiah being king was prophesied, I think somewhere around 300 years before he became king. So the people who heard it wouldn't be the people who judged it. So how do we actually judge prophetic words if they're always about the future? Like, in other words, when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment, and the, the connotation in the, in the context is immediately, how do I judge a prophetic word when it's about the future? I could judge a word of knowledge. You know, if I said, uh, Ben, you're, um, you're, you're an engineer, and you're not an engineer, I'd say, okay, you got the word of knowledge wrong. Like, immediately, the facts aren't right. But how do I judge prophecy when it's about the future? Well, the first thing I would say is we're judging source. So we're saying, is that from the Holy Spirit, your spirit, obviously an evil spirit? And when we judge source and we judge the source to be of the Holy Spirit, we know that God can't lie and therefore the word must be true. I, I, I heard someone speak a long time ago and he says, there's two reasons why God can't lie. The first one's obvious, God's nature God can't lie because he has a perfect nature. The second one is, if what God said isn't true when he said it, it is after. <laughs> if God said the moon is purple, it may not have been purple before he said it, but oh, it is now. <clears throat> but the second thing we're doing when we're judging prophecy that I think is really important for where we're going right now is we're judging, we're judging timing. Proverbs 25, 11 says, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Let me give you an example. In Joel chapter three, verse nine, I was reading the book of Joel this week and had forgotten that this was in there. Joel was proclaiming, and by the way, just, we're gonna jump into the middle of it because really the context is about prophetic judgment and timing. So we're not really gonna talk about the context, but this is the precluder to this is the precluding message to, in the last days I'll pour my spirit out on all flesh that, that, uh, that is actually um, quoted in the book of Acts, that Peter quotes in the book of Acts. Um, here, listen to this. Verse, uh, chapter three, did I say that? 
Joel, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rise, rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak man say, I am, I'm a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourself, bring down. And it goes like this, and it's the whole, the whole message is about preparing yourself for war. He says, take your plowshares, it's an instrument that you would use in the fields, and beat them into a sword. Take your pruning hooks, again, something you would use to prune trees, obviously, and beat them into spears. It's a time of war. Take all your instruments and, and, and turn them into instruments of war. That's Joel 3. Let me read from Isaiah 2. Now it'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come that will say, come and let us, I'm sorry, many people will come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we will walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between nations, and render decisions between many people. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Isn't it, isn't it inspiring that Joel takes the same metaphor. Take your, sword, take your spears and make them swords. Take your pruning shears and make them weapons of warfare. It's time for war. Rise up, mighty men. And Isaiah says, there's coming a time of peace when you'll take your swords and you'll turn them into pruning hooks. You'll take your plowshares and you're turning into instruments of peace. Both are prophetic words. These are both from the Lord. Interestingly, Joel's message is intertwined in the context of last days, I'm going to pour my spirit upon all flesh, so you can say that this is a last day's word also. That there'll be pruning hooks, turns to swords. There'll be There'll be implements of agriculture turned into weapons of warfare. Isaiah actually says, in the last days. So we know that his is a last days prophetic word also. And they will take their spears and they will pound them in the pruning hooks. Prophetic judgment isn't just about if the word is right or wrong. It's about application. It's about application. The question becomes, what time is it? Do you know in this illustration, if you got the timing wrong, you might be going out to war when God's in peace? Do you know you might be laying home sipping suds with the king and he ain't there at all? He's out at war. You remember the greatest mistake in David's life, in my opinion at least, probably in all of our opinions. It says, in the spring, when kings go out to war, David stayed home. And he saw Bathsheba. How many know the safest place to be is wherever God is? I'd like to propose that David, it wasn't David's sex drive that got him in trouble. He had I don't know how many wives and hundreds of concubines, he was out of season. Prophetic words don't just have to be judged for source and accuracy, they have to be judged for seasons. You get the season wrong, you could be killing, metaphorically, killing people when you're supposed to be embracing them. There's another part of prophetic judgment that I think is important. Prophetic declarations often come with conditions while others only require faith. In other words, when we're judging prophetic words, we're not just judging like, is it the Lord? What's, is it the right season? 
Because do you know that the Lord prophesied things that seem current to the prophets, but they're actually hundreds of years later? I mean, even the prophets at times were trying to get the kings to embrace their prophetic words, and yet they came, they came about three kings later, ten kings later. But also, the scary thing is, there are sometimes there are requirements that are in the word. Like, there are, there are conditions in the word. So, let me say, sometimes prophetic words have an expiration date. And sometimes they have conditions. If you don't meet the conditions, the prophetic words don't come about. For example, the children of Israel, about, I guess, somebody estimated 1.5 million, approximately, a lot of people, heard this prophetic word of Moses carrying down, coming down from the mountain and saying, God's taking you into the promised land. I'm obviously ad-libbing this, but the general statement was, you're all going into the promised land. Do you know how many of those people actually went in? Two. I mean, that heard the word. Two. The challenge wasn't that God's word was wrong. The challenge was they didn't meet the conditions. In their case, the condition happened to be believe. They weren't to do anything. They weren't to, like, you know, make it happen. They weren't, it wasn't like, hey, A plus B equals a fulfillment. But they can be like, prophetic words can have that. God says, you're going to go here, and here's how you're going to go to college. You're going to get a degree. You're going to do these three things, and then you will be X and X. What's your job? Believe with action. Go to college. Get the degree. Da, da, da. Other times, God goes, goes, believe me. In their case, it was believing. Now, maybe there were some other conditions I'm not remembering, but the basic condition was just believe me. Just go where I go, do what I do, so on, so just believe me. Um, sometimes we try to make prophetic words happen. And the side effects can be the opposite of good. Abraham and Sarah, I think, are the best illustration of this. God said, you're going to have a son. And you, you, all of you that have been, that known the Lord for any length of time would know, but there may be people watching that don't know the story. They couldn't have children. They tried and tried. They were married for a long, long time. And finally, uh, Abraham and Sarah apparently had a conversation about possibly it's Abraham's problem that he's infertile, that he can't have children. And they get, seemingly, they get in some sort of a dispute. And Sarah gives Abraham Hagar, her servant, and says, well, just have, have, have sex with her. And I, I, maybe Sarah's thinking, I'm going to prove to you it's not my problem. But instead, Hagar gets pregnant. And she has Ishmael. And here's the commentary on Ishmael by Paul in Galatians. You, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise, but as the time, but, at, but as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, and so it is to this day. In other words, not only did they do the wrong thing by like, let's make the word happen, the, the thing they gave birth to actually persecuted the thing that was promised. What happens when you go make something happen? What I'm getting at is they still had to commit the act of marriage. When Abraham and Sarah, God visits Abraham and Sarah, I think Sarah's like, I don't know, they're in their 90s. And God says to Abraham, Sarah's in the tent making dinner evidently, and God says, Abraham, I'm going to come to you this time next year and you're going to have a child. And Sarah hears it, she goes, that's not going to happen. And then she says, seemingly to herself, shall I have pleasure with my master although I'm old? And God comes in the tent and goes, you laughed. She said, oh, no, I didn't. God goes, oh, yeah, you did. Not only that, but we're going to call him Isaac. He laughs. And God goes, we'll see who gets the last laugh. But the point uh, I'm, I'm making here is they still had to commit the act of marriage to have Isaac. Because she said, shall I have pleasure with my master while I'm old? In other words, not like Mary conceived without intercourse. Uh, on one hand, they, had, they made it happen and end up with Hagar. I'm sorry, we end up with Ishmael. On the other hand, they had to still do something to see the prophetic word happen. This is all part of prophecy as, we, as we're learning as a, a corporate body. And 
you know, we, <laughs> Bill, Bill calls Bethel the great experiment. Sometime, sometimes I call Bethel the failed experiment. <laughs> that was a joke, okay. Just. So what I'm getting at is, <laughs> it's a little funny to preach when you don't have a full room. You can actually know who's with you and who isn't. You can hear their voices. I know, you're all with me, I'm just being funny. What I'm getting at is, like, these are all things that we need to learn as a corporate community as we move forward in these really profound and powerful words. In the last few years, probably the last 10, the Lord has given us an international voice. We, we are standing on an international platform. I have to tell you that the transition has been challenging uh, at best and troubling at worst for us. I mean, we're from Weaverville. <laughs> the whole town showed up. We wouldn't fill this building probably, at least Christians. And so the transition, I remember, this is, this is a funny story I've told before, but when we first started streaming, I, don't, I think it was, I don't know, 15 years ago, something-ish, and we were, we were just preaching to our congregation, and pretty much like if you made a mistake or whatever, you could edit the, the audio or the video before you sent it out, because we were all sending it out. And so it was my turn to preach. I think I may have preached the first day, we, first time we streamed, or, or, very, or maybe Kathy thought it was the first time. But it was like three o'clock in the morning, and I was kind of stirring, and she leaned over and she said, hey, you're preaching tomorrow, like three o'clock in the morning. I'm like, yes? She said, you know, they're streaming, right? I was trying to like figure out like, why is she so excited about streaming? I said, yeah, I know that. She says, I talked to Tim and there's no delay. <laughs> there's no delay in the stream. Like, there's no way to edit is the point. <laughs> She's worried about what I'm going to say already. <laughs> there's no, in other words, they can't fix it before the world hears you. I'm like, this woman has been with me way too long. <laughs> I mean, that's the anxiety that we, we had in, in, in the beginning because, you know, we're, we're used to preaching to a congregation who knows us and who is reading our messages through the lens of loyalty and trust. And then, you know, we start streaming, and it, not, not right away, but over a period of a few years, it, we have people that don't know God. We have newspapers. I was telling Bill today, like, I don't know if he knew this, but there, there's, there's actually newspapers that actually get our stream and watch our stream every week. And I'm like, and sometimes you're saying things to the body that's completely appropriate, but you wouldn't say it to the world. And if you did, you would say it another way because you realize you're speaking to people in a different and more compassionate way, or at least a way that would reach them. And you don't have that, you don't have that option now. You just talk to everybody as if everybody is with you. And so this, this very challenging times. And so this prophetic ministry that we have, we have, you know, we obviously were, if you listen to this years later, where, you know, we just have come through prophesying that Donald Trump would do a term, and then he did, and then another term, and apparently he didn't, and I understand, I'm not here to make anybody mad, it's like, he's still going to win, that, that's fine, we got a few more days, we'll, we'll see that, how that goes, and, um, and that's obviously, if he does, it'd be so great for my prophecy, and I said, you know, I will put some tights on and do the chicken dance out in the middle of the field. And now we have people who don't want the prophetic word to happen just because of the chicken down. <laughs> yeah. But where I'm, what I'm getting at is that the challenge now is we're not in Weaverville. We're on a world stage, and here's the problem. Still learning, not experts. And people are watching us like, oh, I'm with him. I'm like, oh, no, don't be with us right now. <laughs> It's challenging. It's challenging. Somebody wrote me yesterday while well, they write hundreds of things to me right now. So encouraging. I've become famous for the wrong thing. I think that's called infamous. Now that you gave a, a bad prophetic word, are you stepping down from the ministry? No, we don't have a culture of infallibility. Like, it, 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 ridiculous. Like, no, I'm demonstrating what you do when you miss it. Or when you apparently miss it, for anyone who's offended by that articulation. I don't know, everyone's just offended about everything right now. 
I had a dream two nights ago. It was really intense. You know, I, I have to tell you, I have a nightlife. I dream every night. Old men dream dreams, and I'm seemingly getting older. <laughs> I almost never have a night where I don't dream. And the way that I've... Okay, it's not perfect, obviously, but I can almost always tell when it's a God dream because of the sense I have when I awaken from it. And uh, I had this dream uh, a couple of nights ago. It was actually early in the morning. And I was, uh, in the dream, I was putting dimes, dimes like currency dimes, in my pockets. I was filling my pockets with dimes. They, they, were, they were everywhere, and I was, I was picking them up, and I had so many, they were, as I was putting them in, they were falling out. But, you know, how weird is that? I'm like, I'm going to get wealthy with dimes! <laughs> no. I woke up immediately, and I, I immediately said, like, still, like, 4 o'clock, 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, I immediately woke up, and I said out loud, Lord, what does that mean? Because I knew it was a God dream. And the Lord said to me, Look at the insigma on the dime. Now, the dime has changed uh, a few times, so, um, but our current dime. So I looked at the insignia on the dime, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt was on the front of the dime. And on the back is a torch, an oak tree, and an olive branch. <laughs> and immediately, I heard, you're the light of the world. You must reach across political and social divides with the olive branch and you must become oaks of righteousness. I looked up Franklin Roosevelt. I realized that he was a Democrat. He was president for four terms, and he led America through the Great Depression and the Second World War. I don't, I don't, I don't even know what to say about that part, except for that still speaks to me. Like he was president during one, probably one of the most, if not the most troubled time, maybe Civil War was the worst, but one of the most troubled times in our history, the dime has Franklin Roosevelt on it. I almost felt like the Lord was saying, the church is like Franklin Roosevelt. It's bringing solutions through troubled times. I fell asleep again immediately, just laid my head on the bed and immediately fell asleep. And I woke back up not more than an hour later with another intense dream. And I was in a, I was in a, a, a really a poor neighborhood, like a, 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 I don't know if it'd be like a ghetto or something. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but just, it was a bad neighborhood. And I was walking through the neighborhood. I had walked out of a beautiful neighborhood into this bad neighborhood. And I walked into a building that was an orphanage. Um, and it was, uh, the lady greeted me at the door, the lady leading the orphanage greeted me at the door, and she said, oh, be careful, don't walk there, where you'll fall through the floor. And everything was rotten. And I said, where's the restroom? And she said, oh, you can go, the restroom's in the back there, and I'm walking through, and she was still warning me, oh, don't step over there either, that's rotten too. And then I noticed the orphanage just had two children in it. And I came out of the bathroom, and I said, wow, how many children do you have here? She goes, oh, we, have, we only have two children. And she said, you can get a lot of money when people think you're helping the poor. And I woke up immediately. And the Lord says, I am breaking the power of corruption. I'm doing it myself. And I felt like the Lord is uncovering corruption. Listen, I know when we think about corruption, we think about the political world right now. Because that's what's... I believe that there's corruption... I think there's corruption in lots more places than just one arena. We all love Isaiah 60, the rise and shine for your light has come. I, last night when I was preparing, I felt I should read you the conditions of darkness. You know, arise and shine for your light has come, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, deep darkness covers the earth. I don't know if you noticed, but chapter 59 is, the, is a description of the darkness Listen to this. Uh, it's going to be a little bit long. Uh, I may not read the whole thing. Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated, 
have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, that he does not, and he, so he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, and your lips have spoken falsehood, and your tongue has muttered wickedness. No one sues righteously. I thought that was interesting. No one sues righteously. In other words, there is a righteous way to sue. No one sues righteously, and no one pleads honestly. Listen to this. They trust in confusion and speak lies, and they conceive mis- mischief and bring forth inequity. Their feet run to evil. I'm going, uh, verse 7, sorry. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their pa- trap their paths crooked, and whoever treads on them does not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We glope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as if in twilight. Among those who are uh, vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there's none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before us. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressions, denying the Lord, turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice has turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, and he saw that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. There was no man. And was astonished that there was no one to intercede. And then his arm brought about salvation to him. His righteousness upheld him. He put on a breastplate like, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and put garments of vengeance on for clothing and wrapped himself in the zeal, with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, he will repay wrath to adversaries, recompense to his enemies, and to the coastlands he made recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. And he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. I'll put my spirit upon you and my words I will put in your mouth. Oh, I'm sorry. And my words which I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now on and forevermore. This is the explanation of the deep darkness that we rise in. Arise and shine is the very next chapter, not by accident. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For deep darkness will cover the earth. What deep darkness? The deep darkness he just described. Deep darkness, the people. But the Lord will rise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. Nations will come to your light. Kings will come to the brightness of your rising. Look all around. They all come to you. Your sons are coming from afar. Your daughters are carrying arms. Now you'll see and be radiant. Your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea has turned to you and the wealth of nations will come to you. You look around at the deep darkness and sometimes it feels like we're concentrating on the deep darkness instead of the arising. Peace is not political correctness. Peace is a violent act of grace. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Caesar's army will never bring about God's revolution. Let me say that again. I know this statement isn't love because I already said it on Facebook just to test the temperature. (laughs) Caesar's army will never bring about God's revolution. The outpouring of the Spirit causes people to change from from the inside out, not from the outside in. The cultural battle of our times will not be won by better ideas, but by the greater love of the Father. 
The fear of our government becoming communist and silencing the Christian voice forever is giving us permission to behave in a way, in my mind, that's unchristian. I can't tell you how many times people have posted things like George Washington, was George Washington wrong? That's when I say, humility is the way forward. I guess they're proposing that we start a civil war and rise up with violence to prove to the world how much Jesus loves them. Please count me out of any violent revolt. Inspiring a holy war through, political, through the political spirit will not lead to revival, but to hate, violence, and murder. The political spirit will redefine a holy war in a way that demonizes people and inspires them to use force to obtain its means. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, and it remains not against flesh and blood. Violence is never a road to reformation. When people justify violence as a means to a holy reformation, they partner with the devil to bring about a move of God. A holy war will be initiated by love, fought with weapons of warfare that aren't carnal, and lead to hearts of men and women becoming prisoners of love. This push towards driving corruption out of our country by means of violent political uprising, whether it's the left or the right, is in itself corruption. The devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy. The end never justifies the means. Many of us wanted to see the corruption in government eradicated. We wanted to see the swamp drained. But we must be sure that we don't become part of the swamp ourselves with an attitude that brings God's conviction, correction, and judgment. Whatever happens to, whatever happened to, whatever happened to loving our neighbors ourselves, whatever happened to loving our enemies and those who persecute us. There's a story that I got to witness firsthand, not firsthand the story, but firsthand the outcome. Um, and it's the Rwanda genocide. I was in Rwanda some years ago, about 10 or 12 years ago. And on April 8th, from April 8th to July 15th of 1994, the Hutus hacked 600,000 of the Tutsis, their neighbors, to death. Here's an account. The hordes of members of the Hutu ethnic majority, armed with machetes and spears, nailed, uh, nail-studded clubs and other weapons, moved from house to house in villages, hunting Tutsis. In this the second largest of Rwanda's three ethnic groups. The radio station, RTLM, allied with the leaders of the government, and they, <coughs> which, had in, was, which was inciting the Hutus against the Tutsis minority, repeatedly describing the latter as cockroaches and snakes. Here's the sad part of the story. 98% of the Hutus and Tutsis were church-going, born-again believers. And the genocide, this terrible genocide of hate was perpetuated by the media. Interesting, these were all Christians who, who demonized the other tribe, calling them cockroaches and snakes. And they got, the, I've talked to people who were actually there. Weston was someone we partnered with who walked the streets when uh, almost 300,000 were executed with machetes that, that day and blood was running in the gutters of the streets. These people were not just Christians. 98% of the population of Rwanda went to church every Sunday. And they were born again believers. I'm repeating what they said. This is not a com commentary. This is only a documentary. I have no idea if they were even saved. I'm only reporting what, what I heard. My point is, is that when you let hate and bitterness in your life, it's crazy what you will allow yourself to do in the name of justice. I love what Martin Luther King wrote. He wrote, at the center of nonviolence stands the principle of love. In struggling for human dignity, the oppressed people of the world must not allow themselves to become bitter or indulge in hate campaigns. To retaliate with hate and bitterness would do nothing but intensify the hate in the world. Along the way, someone must sense enough and immoral, let's see, I'm sorry. Along the way, someone must have sense, uh, oh, must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate. This can be done only by projecting the ethics of love to the center of our lives. I have so much written down 
we will not be part of a movement that inspires or even condones violence as a way of moving our country forward. I will not do anything that causes our streets to be filled with body bags of children who fought for the cause. I was a teenager when I watched our uncles and cousins coming home in body bags from Vietnam, which didn't solve anything. Our job is to win the hearts of people. That's our job. It's interesting to me that LGBTQ movement had no wars, mostly no violence, and have won the hearts of much of the world. And I'm saying, we have a noble message, a powerful God, and weapons of warfare that aren't carnal. Our victory is assured, our reward is great, our message is compassion and love that restores hearts of persons and heals their soul. I really believe that it's incumbent upon us to call the prodigals home, to focus on loving people that we don't agree with. Uh, it's, it's a, the newspaper called us and asked us what we thought about the violence recently. I'm like, is it not an indictment, that, an indictment that they have to ask us what we think about violence? Like, we need to be famous for love. When someone says, you should call that Bethel church or call that church or those church and ask them what they think about the violence, like, that's a stupid question. No one's going to ask us about that. No one's going to, oh, everybody knows what they think about that. So I want to say that humility is the way forward. It remains the way forward. Proverbs 21, 31 says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Psalms 33, 17 says, a horse is a false hope for victory. <laughs> Nor does anyone actually delivered by its great strength. Horses prepare for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. A horse is a poor hope for victory. It, never, it can't deliver you by its great strength. I don't know if you've seen where I'm going. It's like sometimes the Lord causes us to prepare the horse, but then goes, don't, don't put your trust in the horse. Yeah. Don't put your trust in the horse. Uh, Peter, get a sword. No, I'm sorry. Get swords, he said to all his disciples, and Peter ends up with one. Then Peter uses it, and God's like, Jesus like, what are you doing? You said get a sword. I never told you to use it. Like, this is, this is prophecy 101. There's the revelation, the interpretation, and the application. <laughs> get swords. All right, get swords. Okay, don't ask any more questions. Prepare the horse. We're using horses. God's going to win with horses. Oh, we're not taking the horses. He told us to prepare the horse. I didn't tell you to have faith in the horse. I told you to have faith in me. Second Chronicles 7.14 has been quoted so many times lately. If my people, if my people who are called by my name. But the world and the, the Republicans, the Democrats, the... If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Humility is not one of the ways forward. It's the only way forward. God's opposed to the proud. It gives grace to the humble. You know, social media giants are trying to silence the voice of Christians on social media. I'm kind of wondering if God is too. <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke, sorry. But we do have to posture ourselves so God can support us. Are you with me? He says he's opposed to the proud. What does it look like when he opposes proud people? And what does it look like when we get humble and he actually gives us a platform? Yeah. I, I, I don't know about you, but Christians, uh, on, on, I, most of my pages are full of Christians. And I've never seen such vile, violent, judgmental stuff come from believers. You go, well, the world's worse, but the world doesn't know any better. Yeah. God didn't say, if the world repents, he said, if we do. And I told the students the other day, God cares about what you do in secret. What you post behind the secret desk of your computer when you think you're all safe matters. Like God is revealing our hearts. Look at your social page. I just want to finish by saying it's like 
I've worked in D.C. Uh, and uh, many political places in the last 15 years. It's been very difficult. Like, several times I remember texting Bill in the middle of uh, being sitting with a whole bunch of political people and just saying, please pray for me. I have no idea what to do. Because there is so much pressure. It's hard to explain if you've never been in it. I'm like, listen, I'm not saying I'm better than anyone. I'm just saying I may have had some experiences you haven't had. I'm in this place and I feel the pressure. I've felt it. I've been in Russia and Brazil and Ecuador and, and England and D.C. It's like, it's not, it's, not, it's not just American politics. It's just politics. And you get under this, under this uh, spirit and honestly, if you don't live in it and you walk in there, you can feel it. You can actually feel it. And I want to tell you, my, just to describe the first experience, it's like you feel it in a way, it's, this is so hard to describe with words because it's not actually coming to your mind, which is the weirdest thing. But you are offended. <laughs> like you're just offended. You don't even know why you're offended. Like you're just offended. <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm like, I remember being with Rachel uh, who, who works in a political world, I said, can you feel that? And she's like, yeah, I'm like, I just feel offended. I don't even know what I'm offended about. I'm like, this is the spirit, the political, religious spirit, as Bill taught so many times, beware of the leaven of, Fer of Harold, Be beware of the leaven of Herod. <laughs> See, we would, we would edit that out, and I would fix that, but it's not possible. Herod and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That leaven is a spirit. And here's the deal. You get under it, and you don't know you're under it. It's funny because you know someone else is under it. You're like, I can see it on you. It's like... And when I first started working there, I could feel it. All the time. I walk in there, and I'm like... And I, I don't want to say like I heard in my mind like beware of that thing. I could just feel it. I'm just like, oh, I hate this. I, I would tell um, uh, Dan Frost, I hate working in the political world. It's not that I didn't like the people or influence them. I just hate this war that goes on all the time. The scary thing is in the last five years, I don't feel it. I've been thinking a little bit about the Spider-Man movie. <laughs> the thing with Spider-Man 2 or 3 where... He has, he, this black thing gets on him and he ends up with a black suit. And he realizes that you, you got, it's a very prophetic movie actually. I hope, I hope it is. <laughs> hope there's no cussing in it. <laughs> but the, the end of the movie, he realizes that that black thing got on him and grew on him when he was bitter with his friend. And it, they, it depicts him, it, he actually gets it off when he's in a, He's in one of the battles in a church and the bell is ringing. And as the bell's ringing, the thing's coming off of him. What a prophetic movie. And I'm like, and the thing is, is that his girlfriend and his friends are all like, what happened to him? But he can't feel it. He doesn't know it. And what I'm getting at is that if we let offense and bitterness and hatred and unforgiveness get in our life, that thing's just... Pretty soon our Superman suit's black. Our superpowers that he still had, by the way, it increased his superpowers. But they weren't being used for good. I just want to finish with this. Proverbs says, watch over your heart without diligence. For from it flow the springs or the issues of life really easy to have judgments for other people. It's really easy to think you know their motive. I find that most of the people that I've been with in most of the political world are very good people, are very kind people. Even the ones I dramatically disagree with, I find to be really good people, came here to change the world. And sometimes found themselves in that black suit. I just want to say there's a simple solution. The simple solution is the verse we've been quoting the most. Humility is the only way forward. It's the only thing that draws God's favor and grace.
And if we want to win this battle for the hearts of people, it will come only as we humble ourselves and find ways to love people in such extraordinary ways they've never seen it before. We have an opportunity to demonstrate love for an enemy in a way that we haven't ever been able to do before. And to lead our movement through this season of intense offense and polarizing opinions. And by the way, I don't have any, need anyone to agree with me, my political views. I don't even know if I'm right. But I know I'm right about posturing ourselves for promotion. Let's pray. Why don't you stand? If you're watching us in your car, you may not want to stand. Lord, we thank you so much that you are the God of the Reformation. (laughs) And that your will stands and you told us that you have taken history by the horns, so to speak. And that you are in charge of history. And Father, help us to read the times through the prophetic lens of grace, knowing that it's you in charge of it all. And that you turn the hearts of kings like waters turned in a spring. And Father, we trust you 100%. We thank you for horses, but we trust in the Lord. God, give us eyes to see where we ourselves need to shift, where we ourselves need to make adjustments. And if there's anything in us, God, that's not good, I pray that you would help us to shed that and embrace your attitude. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you so very much. I hope you enjoyed that message. You know that this podcast exists to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and develop you in the art of thinking like God. I want you to experience what it means to truly think like God and have the mind of Christ. So just a quick reminder that one of the best ways to do this is to read my book, Spiritual Intelligence, which is available for purchase everywhere you love to buy books. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to share your thoughts with me.